Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to someone I've been wanting to get on the show for flipping ages, Mr. Tom Bennett. Amongst many other things, Tom is a former religious studies teacher, a prolific blogger, the behaviour advisor to the UK Department of Education and the founder of ResearchEd. He also has the notable honour of being the first ever non-math specialist guest to grace this show, although you would never know it with his impressive recollection of the digits of pi. In a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and much more besides. Why, despite a previous career managing nightclubs in Soho, Tom still found behaviour management the trickiest part of becoming a teacher. Why being told you need to work on your status and you need to get students to respect you is an absolute waste of time. How Tom agrees that workload and behaviour are the two main reasons teachers leave the profession and why he feels both can be fixed. Why Tom's two schools theory can go a long way to explaining the workload problem that affects many schools and what is the responsibility of senior management when it comes to workload. What does Tom think makes a bad homework as opposed to a good homework and what can everybody do about this? How would Tom improve meetings in school with one simple, quite brilliant strategy? We then move on to the big one. What are the most practical, effective things everyday teachers can do to improve behaviour in their classroom? Tom feels classroom culture is incredibly important, but how does he establish it and what happens when students break this culture? How can classroom teachers promote positive behaviour as opposed to simply condemning negative behaviour? Is consistency the key to behaviour or should you treat some children different to others in some circumstances? And then a massive issue for me, is it just as dangerous to be inconsistent when focusing on good behaviour as well as bad behaviour? How about the teacher who's midway through the year thinks flipping heck I've already lost this class, how do they get them back? What can supply teachers, temporary teachers and even regular teachers covering a single lesson do to instill the same classroom culture that they expect from students when they don't have the benefit of a long period of time to establish it? I then throw a few behaviour cliches at Tom to see what his take is on them. Don't smile until Christmas anyone? And finally, what is the best bit of research and what is the most surprising piece of research Tom has come across? And what does one of these have to say about the benefits of direct instruction? Well, you know this by now, I'm obviously ridiculously biased, but I hope you'll agree with me that this interview is essential listening for any teacher, no matter what their age or experience. On a personal level, it made me feel like I was not alone in some of the struggles I've had with my classes over the years and still continue to have. And now I feel a lot more equipped with practical, tried and tested strategies to get behaviour back on track. As ever, links to everything we discuss in the interview are available in the show notes, and there's quite a bit, so I do suggest you check them out. And if this interview has hooked in any fellow non-math specialists like Tom, then I would just like to remind people that over at my Diagnostic Questions website, you'll find not just maths questions, but also thousands of top quality free science questions and computer science questions, as well as growing numbers in subjects like English and languages. And just so the maths crew don't feel left out, I'd never want to do 
you that. Well, February the 14th of, uh, well, February the 14th, 2017, make a date in your diary. As well as this being a day of romance, it will also mark the start of the 100-day GCSE revision stream countdown at Diagnostic Questions. These will be 100% free, and you can sign up by following the link on the podcast page. This year, as a special treat, there'll also be two primary streams for Key Stage 1 and 2 SATs, and two IB streams. What better present for your loved one than two questions a day for 100 days? It truly is the gift that keeps giving. Anyway, before I introduce Tom Bennett, let me just quickly apologise. Once again, I was besieged by a few technical problems which affected both the sound quality and reduced the duration of our, of our interview a little bit. Honestly, it was a flipping nightmare and Tom was so gracious and patient throughout. As a result, I have fought against my inherent northern tightness to invest in some better equipment. So fingers crossed this is the last time I need to say this. But hopefully, and I'm sure this will be the case, you'll find enough gold from Tom in this interview that you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. I really hope you enjoy the show and as ever I will see you on the other side. Okay Tom so we'd like to start as ever with your math speed dating questions. I'm sure you're, <laughs> I'm sure you're looking forward to this. Why are you asking the wrong man here? <laughs> so question number one what is your favourite number and why? Oh, that's that's quite easy actually. I used to love maths at school. Um, I, I was a complete nerd for all my subjects, I have to say. Um, but I really, really enjoyed maths. And I used to sit at a table with uh, three or four other kids in God the Clear Academy in Scotland, and we used to sit there and be trying to out nerd each other. I think this is a pretty common thing. And we sat in this. There was in, we're in this room, and I'm sure many math teachers will will recognise this. The the pie was written out on the wall and it was written out to you know some ridiculous number of places like 350 places or something and what we would do once we'd finished our work um while we were kind of uh waiting for the te- teacher to you know look up from a copy of the newspaper um <laughs> we would try and memorize pi which is you know the kind of saddest thing you can possibly imagine and another reason when i was a kid i used to read um sci-fi books and some people will recognize the, the stainless steel rat novels um, by God, who was it now? Is it Harry Harrison or something like that? I can't remember. Anyway, Stainless Steel Rat was this um, kind of futuristic anti-hero. And one of the things that he would do when he was trying to work out if he was sober or not was he would try, <laughs> he would try and remember pi to 20 places. All right. Um, and I just, you know, when I was 12 years old, I thought that was the coolest thing ever, you know? That's how you know you're not drunk. <laughs> so... We would sit in this classroom and we'd try and memorise Pi to as many places as we could, and it became a bit of a competition eventually. So, Pi is is, is my is my um is my is my is my favourite number to, to to as many numbers as I can possibly remember at the end. Oh, excellent choice, Tom. And it begs the obvious question: How many can you remember now? How many oh, are son of a bitch. <laughs> Um, 3.14159265358897, and that's where I stopped. I'll tell you what, that's decent, that. That is very impressive. Eh? <laughs> Your respect amongst the mass listeners has gone through I'm the roof. Really as drunk as I might sound. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, question number two, then. It links into that a little bit. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um. Oh, God. <laughs> That's that's a really that's a really hard one, especially for for a non-specialist. I'll tell you what, I'm I'm a very good example of of, of something that many math teachers bemoan, which is 
Um, I used to do maths pretty well. You know, I was, I was, me and a few guys were like, you know, the maths geeks in the class. But I didn't really understand a lot of why we were doing it. Yes. And I, you know, and I think a lot of maths teachers will probably, <laughs> that will chime with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the students. I mean, I could do differential calculus. I used to love doing differential calculus. And I think it was purely because I just used to love, um, you get that little kind of thrill of winning when you, when you, you know, when you solve an equation, it's as simple yes. as that. It, that's it, you know, just that little kind of, that little pop of, oh, I did something good there. Um, and I love to make my teachers happy, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you to this day what differential calculus did. And I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't know then. Um, and I'm not one of these people that's particularly mad for, um, real life maths and so on. You know, if you know anything about me, that's, that's definitely not where I'm kind of coming from. <laughs> At the same time, it would have been nice to know what the hell it was we were doing because it just seemed like a kind of convoluted, uh, ritual we were going through, which I was very happy to perform. So I'm going to say differential calculus, but you know, with huge caveats. Good, good answer. It sounds like you took maths to a fairly high level then, Tom. Is this kind of A level standard? Uh... No, no, no. This is, um, gosh, in Scotland, this is, <coughs> 20 or so years ago. Uh, this was GCSE, or we would call it O levels or O grades, right, I think. Right, okay. Flipping heck. Oh, good. Oh, very impressive. Well, again, two excellent answers from a non specialist this time. Well, you're on a roll here. I hope, I, I hope I, I, I'm excused by the answers. <laughs> well, my final math speed dating question for you is what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in the wonderful world of education? Is that a maths question? No, no, we're question? going broad. We're, we're going general on the podcast here. So yeah, t- oh. take it however you want. Uh, if I wasn't, if I wasn't involved in education, it's it, to be honest, it's fairly obvious. Obvious to me, I'd want to be a writer, uh, and I'd love to write. I'd love to write young adult fiction. I I, I love. I adore writing. Anybody, um, anybody who loves writing and loves words, will know what I mean. It's something that you just feel like you have to do. It's something like you feel that you're not happy unless you do it. And even when I was in, in my previous life, when I used to run nightclubs in, in Soho, uh, I used to go home at the end of my shift, you know, four o'clock in the morning and write a thousand words. Um, and it was all rubbish, I'm sure. But it was just what you wanted to do, you know. And I found that you make time for things that you love. Yes. And, and fun enough writing and teaching were that were pretty much the saving of, of me so i'm very grateful to both and do you um because i was reading a blog recently that said that one of the kind of most healthy things any human can do is try and write a thousand words a day or 500 words a day do you do you prescribe to that do you try and write every day absolutely i do write every day and uh, i don't set myself a particular target minimum but i always write at least about a thousand words a day and on the days that i don't write i feel a wee bit sad <laughs> isn't that sad <laughs> uh, so i usually kind of make up for it on the days that i am writing so um i usually do it when everyone goes to bed or if i get you know half an hour on a train and so on but it's just it, it goes back to a maxim I was told years ago you know you find times for the things that you love yes and if you're sitting on the tube if you've got I mean I've got a little iPad mini with a, a bluetooth keyboard on it and you can just sit there and tap merrily away and it might not be particularly good but you know what it is you're writing yes. and you're and, and you're practicing and you're staying fluent with it and like I say I don't rate myself as a particularly great writer but I'm but I'm a, I'm a reasonable writer and if I am it's just because I write all the time 
Got it. Fantastic. It seems a bit of a shame to get on to maths here in a little bit here, Tom. I'd happily talk about writing. No, no, feel free. (laughs) But I wonder, just to give our listeners a bit of perspective here, can you just briefly describe um, your career to date? So so how did you get to where you are, Tom? And what, what, what what are you up to now? I left university with kind of very much first generation uh, first generation of the family going to university so I didn't have a great many role models or contacts within the, the kind of world of you know anything beyond fairly blue collar um, employment so I ended up working in a bar I just had no idea so I worked in bars I worked in uh, the wonderful world of TGI Fridays in Glasgow <laughs> nice. I did that for a few years Jesus <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what I was a damn good waiter I, you know I, 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 <laughs> If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I was one thing in my life was I was an excellent waiter. I really was, um, and I kind of hated it, but but it's a really easy lifestyle to get sucked into. Did that for a few years, realised that essentially, and um, if I didn't get out, they'd be measuring up, me up for a coffin. So I left and went to London when I was about twenty, uh, no, twenty-one, twenty-two. Uh, got a job in a bar. Great, you know, that was that was a huge leap, obviously, in Soho. Um, and for, if anyone hasn't worked in Soho, which I presume is most people listening to this, um, it's, it's basically the Wild West. I mean, anyone, anyone who's ever had a proper job and worked in a proper company with, you know, employment rights and, and, and you know, and due process and so on, you won't believe how staggeringly <laughs> chaotic um, working life can be in Soho. You know, you get hired and fired in a day. Uh, all kinds of rules and laws get broken all the time. I didn't even know this was. I didn't even know this was odd. And um, I went to work at his bar, and I remember about six months later, after working as a bartender, everyone else got sacked, but me, which made me the general manager. You know, and it, it was just you know talk talk about a battlefield promotion. So I um, I ended up running a, a nightclub in Seoul for got five or six years, um, which was an extraordinary experience. And it was, it was like being a kind of a warlord in a, in a, in a kind of, you know, in a chaotic state. It was good because you're you're this you're this kind of ruler of a tiny tiny kingdom, and there's lots of other little rulers, and you all know each other, and it's 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 a very odd place to be, and the people there are very 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 interesting, and I met people from all walks of life, and it was fascinating. It really was. It was a huge eye opener for me. But after doing that, and I ran nightclubs in Chelsea and London and Camden, and again, good life experience, but not really going anywhere. And after doing that for about nine years, roughly in the year 2000, um, I was just going crazy. And I saw an advert which said, use your head, teach. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I suddenly realized, no, this is this is what I should be doing. This is, you know, it just seemed obvious. It wasn't even a, a wonder if I should do this. It just... It just seemed like the door to walk through, so I applied. I worked in nightclubs uh, and restaurants when I was um, when I was doing my PGCE, which was hilarious. <laughs> so I did that at the weekends, and then went back to school, you know, Monday to Friday. Doing a PGCE when I was about thirty years old was a very odd experience because uh, up to that point I had a fairly adult existence with you know a, a reasonably good income and a, and a, and a house and so on. Um, and then giving all that up and going back to the student lifestyle and 
basically having no job uh, apart from working at the weekends. So it was a very tight lifestyle. I couldn't have managed it if it hadn't been for the generous bursaries that were going around at the time. Um, there were lots of kind of golden hellos and so on, particularly if you were on the fast track program as I was, which is a kind of a really weird precursor to teach first. Uh, but, you know, without the without the, the, the salutes and the cult slogans. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, teach first, I love you. Um, <laughs> they, do, they, know, they know I love them. And um, it, it was it was a very odd learning experience because I'd been out of academia of any sort for about ten years, um, working in bars, which is a, which is you know not what you would call a very intellectual you know lifestyle. And it's a very intense lifestyle. And you don't have time to read books. You don't have to you know you don't have time to go to the theatre. It's just a it's just a completely consuming lifestyle where you work sixteen hours a day. And you, you wake up in the bar and then you you know you fall asleep in the bar. Um, so going back into a situation where you had to sit and listen and learn was very, very difficult for me. And if I'm honest, I found um, when I was at university doing my degree, when I was, you know, when I was a kid, um, there was lots and lots of books to read and there was very structured and lots of tutorials and so on. Doing the PGCE, it, was, it felt much, much more of a loose experience. Nobody seemed to check if you'd read anything. Um, nobody seemed to test you on what you knew. Uh, by the time I finished my PGCE, nobody seemed to be particularly bothered by the fact that I didn't know very much about my subject. Uh, you know, and, and, and I don't mean that as a kind of true confession. I mean that as a kind of a, you know, it's, 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 well, maybe it is a kind of a you know, confession, although I've said it many times before. Um, that's shocking. You know, it's really, really shocking. You can get to become a teacher in, in a secondary school in the UK. Uh, and I was teaching religious studies. And I didn't know about the five Ks. I didn't know about the, you know the five pillars of Islam, and I didn't know particularly very much about the Catholic catechisms and so on. And I, I knew a lot about philosophy and a little bit about theology, but that, that was pretty much it. So um, yeah, the PGC I was on it, it made me think that maybe t- going into teaching wasn't quite such a rigorous career as I'd expected. Um, I loved teaching and I really loved it, but I hated it for the first three years because it was so bloody difficult. What what was uh, difficult, Tom? The workload or what? what? Uh, behavior management. Right. Behavior management was a thing. Now bear in mind that by this point I'm 30 years old. I'm a little bit older. I've got life. I've got life experience. Um, I'm fairly confident by this point. Um, you know, kids don't scare me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not shy. But in front of a lot of people. Um, and while I wasn't great at my subject, um, and, you know, I knew enough to prep for it the night before i mean i wasn't particularly worried about my content knowledge although you know <laughs> looking back i should have been <laughs> um but it was just the fact of going into a situation where the east end of london you know kids don't just behave for you at the click of your fingers and i found that um i found that how that running the room was the, was the most difficult thing getting kids to do what you wanted them to do getting them to stay on task and stay focused getting them to to not just chat to each other or jump on their phones or leave the classroom or now, this, this is interesting, this, Tom, because obviously coming from the background that you have where you've been running nightclubs and obviously yeah. I'm not picturing you kind of big bouncer on the door beating up kind of three or four skinheads coming in. Maybe I'm wrong not, not to well, picture that. Well, if it helps, I mean, But would I be right in assuming that you would have come into teaching not not concerned about the behaviour aspect, almost taking that as a given and, and more worried about the subject knowledge and the pedagogy side of things? And was it a, was it a bit of a shock to you that the, the behaviour was, was such a kind of key part and such a difficult part of teaching yes absolutely oh absolutely i i i mean like any human being i was of course a little bit nervous sure 
about standing in front of a class and trying to get them to do what I want them to do. But it wasn't my biggest fear. I didn't think to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be awful. They're not going to do what I ask. And that's what exactly what happened. Um, and it took me years to realize that there was a deficit in my training. And I'm not having, incidentally, I want to be really clear here, I am not having a go at the institute in which I studied because the institute in which I studied um, is a very good one. And it's got a great reputation and it does a, you know, a very respectable PGCE. That's when I realized a few years into my career that, that nationally we didn't have the right attitude for training people in behavior management and that it was, it was very much assumed that you would pick it up on the job and that if there was to be any formal content delivered about behavior management, it would be at most, you know, a, a one hour lecture or something about basic principles. And sometimes these basic principles could be bloody awful. They could be something along the lines of, you know, you know, you need to work on your status. You know, or so, I mean, you, may, you might as well just say use the force. I mean, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Or something like, you know, you have to get them to respect you. Oh, really? Wow, that's great. Thanks, because I was going to do the opposite. So, you know, it, it just kind of bugged me that, that there was this really wishy-washy, willy advice about behaviour management. All right, Tom. Well, that, that seems a perfect point then to, to, to talk about behaviour because... I don't know if you'd agree with me, but when I, when I speak to guests on this show, especially PGCE tutors or people who mentor young teachers, they always say that the two biggest reasons teachers leave the profession are workload and behaviour. So, firstly, with, with the kind of in your in your vast experience, does that does that chime true with with what you find? Absolutely, absolutely. I would let, let it ring from the mountaintop. Workload um, and behaviour, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're the two um, they're the two elephants in the classroom, and the sad. And inspiring thing is that they both can be fixed. Right. Uh, and it's sad because that it's unnecessary that these things impact on teachers so much. But it's inspiring because we can do something about both of them. It's um, it's it's funny. I think that I think that schools are particularly uh, prone to mission creep. You know, we're often told here's this new thing that you have to do, but yes. very rarely in school. Anybody ever say, here's what we're going to stop doing as a result? Yes. Yeah. Um, and sadly, in too many schools, there is a dislocation between, um, I call it my two schools theory, that there are there are people at school who have got light timetables, who might have seniority, high status, and they might have been there for a long time. And then there's the other type of people in schools. There's the other school, the school of the new teacher, the supply teacher, the PGCE, the struggling teacher, the teacher with the full timetable and so on. Now, these, these schools are often very, very different from one another and the inhabitants both often don't see each other very much. Yes. Uh, and the thing is, the inhabitants of one school think everything's fine. The inhabitants of the other school think everything's terrible. Um, a polarising dramatic effect here, but it's but it's it, it's, it's a useful mental exercise. Yes. Um, it's very easy to give somebody else work to do uh, as a way of solving a problem. And I've learned that as much in nightclubs and bars as I've learned it in, in, in schools. It's very easy for somebody in a leadership or management position. And I'm not bashing leadership and management here, but they do have a responsibility, which is why we can talk about it. The, um, it's very easy for them to... to, to create a solution to a perceived problem which involves somebody else working very, very hard. Yes. The core role of a teacher is, wait for it, this this, this will, I hope you're sitting down for this, the core <laughs> of a teacher is to teach children, not yes. to educate them. Uh, however you then perceive that, either socially or academically, I don't mind whichever definition, but that is broadly speaking the core role. 
Um, anything which repeats upon that is is uh, it's kind of like I always think of this story about you know the, the farmer who killed the goose that laid the golden eggs. There's only there's only so many times you can stick your hand up a goose's duodenum, <laughs> and there's only there's only so many nuggets or carrots that you can find up there of gold before the, the the goose starts to suffer. And I fear that in this rather unwieldy and tragic metaphor, the teachers or the teaching staff are the geese. Um, I, I wrote recently about homework. I think homework's a fine thing. I think good homework's a fine thing. I think crap homework's a terrible thing. Yes. Um, I think marking is <laughs> is a dreadful thing. But you know, it's a necessary evil to some extent. No, can, that's I, not... can I just can I stash you on that one, Tom? What makes a good homework? What makes a bad homework? Oh well, a good homework is something which involves some kind of consolidation of the learning that that happened in school or a development of the learning beyond it. A good, a good homework is a learning experience. The reason why some homeworks are bad pieces of homework is because they're done to satisfy uh, a hypothetical, bureaucratic, administrative timetable. You know, you must set homework every week. Um, so, for example, I mean, there are some terrible examples of homework out there. I mean, I've, I've seen teachers setting, you know, colour in this picture of the Buddha. I've seen, I've seen teachers saying, you know, write a, write a poem about the Tudors. And you're like, what? And the reason why that, to my mind, isn't a great piece of homework is because it's essentially asking them to do a task which isn't directly related to the, the content that they were supposed to be learning. And children will, I mean, Daniel Willingham was great on this, you know, children will then spend time thinking about something which is not that that they're supposed to be learning about. Um, I mean, when I first started teaching, I mean, I'm talking early years here, uh, we used to do a lesson on the mandala. And the mandala is a, is a, is a Buddhist um, picture or sculpture or icon which is created and used as a, as a religious and meditative piece of art and the whole point of a mandala is it's supposed to be impermanent, you know, it's supposed to fade away, right. so you might make a picture of sand or something um, and the reason for that is so that Buddhists can reflect upon the transience of life, right? right. Isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't that great? Deep, I like it. So I would ask my kids to go home and make a mandala Um and a lot of them would go and make cakes and stuff like that, right? You know, cakes shaped like Jesus. Yes. Cakes, cakes shaped like, you know, the Buddha. And, you know, hey, listen, if a child decided to do it spontaneously, I wouldn't I wouldn't say no to it. But the point is they were spending hours on it. And while some of them probably had, you know, loved it and it was a nice family activity, um, I realise now, looking back, that I was asking children to give up hours of their life to make something which didn't really teach them very much. Yes. You know, and and I and I very strongly believe now that the, the time spent with family is precious, uh, and that you you steal it at your peril as a teacher. And going back to the workload issue, um, it would be great if teachers had time to do everything, but they don't. You know, teachers are teaching what twenty hours a week if you're full time, a little bit of time every little bit of time every day that's non-contact, but it's certainly not free, and it's usually spent marking and preparing and catching up with the master. Yes and so on there is too much to do in teaching and we're expecting teachers to do brilliant jobs and also do too much um i would love to see every piece of homework marked i would love to see every book marked thoroughly uh, and great spelling and grammar corrections i would love to see every child have that kind of special private me time but guess what it's not going to happen in a mainstream large uh, large scale situation and so what that means is is that teachers should set very light amounts of homework that's feasible for them to mark. 
you know, that's an example of one way you solve workloads. You, you cut down homework to an absolute bare minimum. And besides, a lot of the research shows us that a lot of homework has minimal impact whatsoever, certainly in the primary years and even in secondary it only starts to accrue some kind of benefit, A, if it's meaningful homework, and B, if it's if it's set towards you know, the end of the school career. You know, the, old, the older you are, the more effective it becomes. And, and is this message, Tom, a message for, for senior leaders, or is this something that individual teachers who are often tied into a school's homework policy, whether it's mark books every two weeks, or whether it's triple marking, or whatever it might be, is there anything kind of practical individual teachers can do who are locked into this cycle where they're very much dictated to by what, what the school homework policy yeah. says? Well, yeah, everyone can do something about this, um, but I accept that some people can do more about it than others. Yes. Individual classroom teachers, I certainly wouldn't ever advocate to them, you know, break your school's policy, go against what you've been told. I don't want them to lose their job. <laughs> no. uh, but what but what they could do is perhaps do a work to rule on it. So if the, if the requirement of the school is that you set one piece of homework a, work, a week and it's marked, then you set something which is, you know, useful for them non-consumptive of too much of their time and very, very easy for you to mark. So it could yes. even be something so it could even be something that the class could mark when you start your next lesson. You know, it could be something as, as, as straightforward as that, or it could be something like, you know, you know, do these five maths examples and then show me show me your answers at the end and get your peer to check it. It's, you know, that kind of likeness is, is, is I guess why I'm getting around it. And yes, most of this message is towards people with um, any leadership position in schools and responsibility in schools. Because I beg your pardon. Um, because the, 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 the leadership of the people that tend to dole out the tasks, um, and they need to be listening to what's actually possible for staff to do and still perform in a meaningful way uh, for the benefit of children. And, and if they could just see perhaps how these tasks build up and build up and build up. And the number of people who say things like, oh, I've got this job for you, it'll just take five minutes. Well, yes. guess what? There's not that many five minutes in the day. No. You know, I get people to say to me things like, oh, can I, sit, can I just quickly call you for 15 minutes? And I'll say no, and they'll say, well, it's just 15 minutes. And I'll say, yeah, but, you know, I need that 15 minutes. Yeah, of it's, course. It's my 15 minutes uh, to do all the other stuff you asked me to do. So that's that's a, that, that, that's very much a, a thing for, for, for leaders to think about. And there's whole loads of things that, that school leaders could do which would, which would make life easier for staff. I mean, for a start, you can bin 90% of meetings. <laughs> yeah. you can you can just you can just open up the, the 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 bin and just drop them in there and shut the shut the lid um most meetings are spent up sp- spent up doesn't mean <laughs> most meetings are sp- can you please edit that <laughs> are spent you know you know on procedural matters or waiting for someone to turn up or or, or waiting for somebody to uh, make a point which isn't relevant to everyone else and so on if you're going to have a meeting can i make a suggestion have a standing up meeting yes Take away the chairs, and I guarantee if you have a standing, obviously you know, subject to people's mobility possibilities and so on. You know, if you're if you've got a stick or you're, you know, socially if you're, you know, impaired in any way, then then don't. But um, if you have a standing up meeting, I guarantee your meetings will take about a quarter of the time. Yeah, that's uh, good. It's a, it's a huge one, and also distribute materials in advance, and also make sure that there's no AOBs unless they've been unless they've been signalled in advance. Stuff like that. There's things you can do to make things tight. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop buying another workload. But that, that's that's one of the biggest things. Um, meaningless paperwork and administration, which purely designed to trump and uh, please kind of data collation purposes. And then behaviour. Behaviour is the other big elephant in the classroom. This uh, people aren't trained adequately in enough schools to deal with behaviour properly. And they are in some. Don't get me wrong. There are some great 
HE and school-based providers that do some fantastic teacher training provision. That's something we've we've found when we're looking into it for the um, ITT uh, working party. Okay, Tom. So if it's all right with you, obviously you, you're kind of known as a, a behaviour expert. So I, I'd be kind of criminal if I didn't tap into some of this, some of this expertise. And also it helps that I think because you've shared your experience that behaviour was one of the biggest stumbling blocks you found as a teacher in your early career. So I want to know from your experience, from your research, from all that you've learned and all that you've seen, what are the kind of practical, effective, top things that teachers classroom teachers can do to improve behavior management and generally just improve the teaching and learning and, and their happiness in the profession yeah absolutely it, it's it's you know what distilling this has been my life's work yes <laughs> um and these are the kind of things that i would like um every teacher to to, to be aware of and again it, it it chimes quite a lot with the work we did with the itt working party so if people want to find out more they can find out about that by just uh, googling your know, dfe itt working party tom bennett and that'll take you straight to it um so the, one of the f- first things you have to do is you have to set your stall out with the kids you have to let them know what the, the expectations of them are now again most teachers know that but what they don't know is how to do that in practice what they don't know is how to make that concrete and usually it's because they haven't seen teachers doing this and often when we go into the classroom we're expected just to kind of improvise and freestyle and work it out for ourselves but you can't freestyle chords unless you know you, how to play the chords in yes. the first place you know uh, you know you can only play jazz if you're a pretty good you know traditional guitarist or whatever instrument you are um i'll drop this metaphor now so when you <laughs> i know so when you go to the classroom basically what you want to do is you want to say to them this is how i want you to behave tell them set your stall out tell them also things like you know i expect a great deal of you i tell my classes for example every single one of them i tell them i care about you i know it sounds a bit fuzzy um but i'd say i care about you i care about your well-being i care about your education because i care about you we're going to have some rules you know, because I care about you. Um, and that might be the first nice thing they've heard said to them for a while. You never know. And for a lot of kids, it is, sadly. Um, and you say to them, look, this room's going to have structure. This room's going to have some kind of routines. And here's the thing. The most important thing a teacher can do is lay down the routines for a class. Now, what do I mean by routines? A routine is anything that you need them to do habitually without thinking about it too much. A routine is something which you want them to do all the time pretty much the same way without thinking about it very much. So there are lots of things that you'd you'd like them to be thinking about in class, like, for example, the lesson, and lots of things you don't want them to have to think about. For example, you know, where their bags go. Yes. You don't want to have, you don't, you know, you don't want to have the same conversation a million times about why you shouldn't be talking. You don't want to have the same conversation about, you know, should you line up or not line up? Should your homework planners be on your desk? Should everyone sit in the carpet? Should everyone put their bags on a hook or whatever? These are things which you can make automatic. Uh, and you know, and some people go, oh man, that's, that's terrible. You're turning them to robots. Not at all. A lot of things we do are routine and automatic. You know, the way I get up in the morning is pretty routine. And these days involves changing nappies. Um, you know, the way I brush my teeth is completely routine and, and, and good. You know, I don't have to watch a, a video on YouTube about how to brush my teeth every time I want to brush my teeth. I want to just, you know, I want to just sink into my, 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 my ROM. I mean, God, do, do, do people still use the terms RAM and ROM? You know, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, my, my long-term memory, you know? Um, and exactly the same in the classroom. So I say to teachers, set out your routines. Make them clear from the minute you first see the kids. I mean, make that your first lesson. I don't care what age group they are. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how we're going to run the rule. 
run the room. Here are the rules to the classroom. Here's how we're going to ask questions. Here's how we're going to enter the classroom. Here's how we're going to run transitions between activities. Here's how you're going to address an adult when they come into the room. Here's how you're going to address me. Here's how you're going to address each other. Here's how you're going to stand outside or not stand outside. Here's how you're going to begin your lesson. Is there work on the board or do you get a reading book out or whatever? You make these things automatic. You tell them what you want them to do and then you practice it. And this is crucial. You practice it. You make them do it physically a couple of times until you see them doing it properly. You explain to them these things are for their benefit. And then the hardest part of this whole equation is you constantly remind them about these processes as you go through your school career. Now, that sounds really dry and a wee bit weird and a bit like something from Westworld. (laughs) I promise you, if you front load your behavior training like that with kids at the beginning of your relationship with them, your relationship will blossom 100 times more quickly than it would otherwise. Because these kids are all coming to your room with very different expectations as to what good conduct is. They're coming to your room with different beliefs and values and, 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 and cultures about you know, how do we do things? There are some kids who think it's absolutely okay to walk into your classroom shouting. Yes. Or there are some kids who think it's okay to come into your classroom running. There are some kids who think it's okay to uh, talk back to you. There are some kids who think that if they want to ask a question, it's okay to shout. These kids aren't always doing this because they're naughty or bad or wrong or evil. They're doing it because they think that's okay. So you need to tap into that and say, right, guys, you've all got different ideas about what's okay. Here's what's okay in this room. Yes. You know, and when you explain it to them like that, most kids go, all right, fair enough. Kids are so, so, so flexible when it comes to observing social norms. And this is all about creating a social norm. What's normal? What's the culture of your room? And by culture, I mean, how do we do things in this zone? That's all the culture means to me. How do we do things? What do we believe in this space? And you need to create that for your kids. That's my main point. And this is all happening kind of the first lesson of the school year or first time you see a class. And would you advise kind of writing these rules out, getting them stuck in kids' books or pinning them up around the classroom so you can always refer back to them? Absolutely. As a consolidation exercise, absolutely. I mean, bearing in mind that things written down are only useful if they're read. Yes. And and then they're only useful if they're performed. So giving them out in a written form is is, is useful as a, as, as, as a, you know, as a memento, a memento, an aid memoir. Sorry, sure. uh, see, I couldn't remember it hard. Oh, nice. I, um, I just, I just like fell into an inception, a layer of inception there. Um, so yeah, by all means. And then what I do with a lot of my kids is I get, I get them to stick the rules in their books, and then they take them home, and get their mums and dads to sign it, and they sign it, and it becomes a kind of a contract. So not only do you have uh, a lesson on behaviour, but you've also got your first piece of homework, haha, which is very easy to check. So there you go, you've just saved yourself 45 minutes of your life. Um, and also you you immediately find out which children have a difficulty in following instructions, which children perhaps have a difficulty uh, engaging with uh, adult members of their family to participate in their education. You know, it's a simple little activity, but you can learn so much from that. Um, so you do that, you really front load that, whatever age group you've got, this is how we're going to do things here. I'm, I'm doing it because I care about you. And then you constantly refer to it. That's the key thing. That's the thing that unlocks it. That's the secret sauce. You constantly refer to it throughout the entire relationship until it becomes automatic, until it becomes so obvious that you barely need to say it. And I often say with these kind of techniques about creating routines is that they aim towards their own extinction. You want to be getting to the point where you're no longer mentioning it. You know, it's, it's the same as with sanctions and detentions and so on. 
they're not totally nice things, but they're necessary things sometimes. But they aim towards their own extinction. You're doing them so you don't have to do them anymore. Got it. Well, let, let's let's talk then about what happens when people break these routines. So let's say we're, I don't know, well, let's take two scenarios. Let's say we're in the early days of you um, establishing these rules and routines. So yeah. it's, it's quite new for students and perhaps they're going to break, whether it's talking, when, when you're talking or, or, or whatever. How, how would you deal with that versus dealing with the same kind of uh, breaking of a, of a routine or a rule kind of three or four months down the line? Will there be a different approach there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, it's funny, when we talk about academic progress for children, we are, we're often very good at talking about, you know, what's their baseline, where do they start from? And that will tell you how much progress they've made, right? You know, you, if, if a child has got, for example, can you hear me still? Yes, yes. Oh, I beg your pardon, I, I thought we were doing a dropout there. <laughs> no. um, if you're teaching a child a foreign language, for example, and they have, let's say, French, and they have no French whatsoever, then you don't start by asking them to... Uh, you know, translate the front page of Le Monde, you know? <laughs> you know, you, you, you work from the baseline you've got. Similarly, when you've got children who perhaps um, don't have great working habits and great social habits yet, you don't start off with them by expecting them to be brilliant from the first instant. You expect there to be a few hiccups and snags and so on. Having said that, uh, that analogy doesn't quite hold because translating Le Monde is an incredibly difficult thing, whereas most children understand you know, that you need to sit reasonably still and you need to be reasonably quiet when the teacher's talking and so on and so forth. So at least they're not complex things to convey, but they are still very hard for some children to do. So what you do is you give them a little bit of take-up, as you would with any academic instruction. You, 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 know, you give them a few warnings. You say, right, okay, what rule did we just break there? Can you remember you need to have your eyes on me? Or can you remember what we said about not talking about other people? That's absolutely fine in the first few days, first maybe even the first few weeks of the relationship. But after a few reminders, after a few um, uh, a few exercises where you've exemplified the kind of conduct you want, that's when you see they need to start turning the volume up slightly on the consequence codes, um, and you'll and you kind of learn how much to turn the volume up. As you go along, to some extent, some of these things have to be learned in a classroom, and I can't give you a clear-cut answer. Sure, you know, some sure. some children some children need a five-minute detention pretty quick, and some children, you know, you want to watch out how many times you give detentions to because it can really alienate them quickly from your lesson and so on. But uh, but bearing in mind you have to try and be fair and consistent as well. Um, so yes, yes, you do start doing that once you've had the kids for three or four months. It's a very different matter they can't say to you oh i didn't know what the rule was if you've told them 50 times yes you know so once i've had a class for a few months if they decide to shout out an answer to me or they decide to shout over another member of the class or if they you know pick up their book and smack somebody with it right in front of me i don't give them a warning anymore but that point it's straight to right you need to see me after lesson because that was that was absolutely of order and we need to discuss that i need to work out ways of you not doing that again you know, you, there's only so many times you can get a warning. Yes, and, and just yeah. just to pick up on on that, Tom, the, the sanctions itself. You mentioned there, see me at the end of the lesson. Would would that be one that would that be kind of your most popular go to, or would it be? <laughs> can you can you leave the room for five minutes? Um, I mean, I think detentions um, are one of the most commonly used sanctions in school, and and, and probably rightly so, because 
I mean, detention comes from the word to detain. To, de- to detain just means to keep a child outside of a, a list so that you can then perform some kind of remedial activity with them. Now, it might be punitive. You know, you might just be te- it might just be a telling off. It might just be a here's some work to do and I don't want to hear from you for 15 minutes so that they get this kind of short, sharp shock of, oh, you know, I'm in trouble now. And you don't give them anything to do, which is, which, you know, contravenes their their their, their, their human rights from the Geneva Convention. You know, you're just asking, <laughs> you know, it, it, some people go, oh, that's really, that's really nasty and punitive. No, it's not. I mean, it's just, it just makes them vaguely uncomfortable, mildly uncomfortable. You want them to not want to be in that situation. You want them to be a mild deterrent from misbehaving. That will work for, I would say, about 90% of children in mainstream schools. Yes. That, you know, most, most, most children don't want to miss playtime. Most children don't want to miss a bit, a bit of lunchtime. Most children don't want to uh, not be able to walk home with their mates and so on. Most children don't want, uh, you know, the, the, the walk of shame of having to go to detention and so on. They'd rather avoid it. And they'll, they'll do this really easy maths in their head. You know, is it worth the trouble I'm going to get into for the fun I'm going to have by breaking the rules? And, you know, and that will deter most people. And for someone that says, oh, that's terrible, you know, you must run a school like that. That's how we run society. You know, there, there, are, there are plenty of sanctions in society, both formal in terms of legal ones and also informal in terms of social ones. And all we're doing at school is replicating that. The madness is when you don't have any kind of form of sanctions and you say to children, you can be as naughty as you like and nothing will happen to yes. you. Because that, I mean... I don't know what kind of la-la land some people are in, but, but but to assume that children will respond to that and go, oh, well, then you must be really kind. I'm going to be nice to you. It's just, you know, it's, it's utopianism of, 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 of genuinely the worst kind. And the reason why I say the worst kind is because I think it's actually harmful for the children. Yes. I think it leaves them in a worse state than they were. It leaves them thinking everything is permitted. Nothing is forbidden. You need to, and you need to police those boundaries. You need to reinforce those boundaries and support and scaffold the children's behaviour to be better than what it would be naturally. We want children to learn amazing habits of self-regulation and self-restraint, focus, and all these kind of wonderful things that it takes to make anything valuable. And sometimes children need help to get there. You know, guess what? That's what growing up is about, and it doesn't just happen naturally. In fact, that's what adults are for. And it, it does make me a wee bit angry when people suggest, oh, you mustn't use things like sanctions and so on. You must. You must. And you must use them in conjunction with things like rewards. And also, you must use much more than just sanctions and rewards. There are a million other consequences you can give to children which aren't just well done and, uh, and or you're naughty. You know, there's lots of other things that could be the consequence of actions and behaviours. But there needs to be consequences because consequences teaches children that they matter and their actions matter. And that what they do is important and things will happen as a result of it. And if that takes a sanction or a reward, then that's a fantastic thing to be able to do. Um, I think there's a big problem in education where we see good behaviour sometimes as just the absence of bad behaviour. Yes. Which it is. Don't get me wrong. You know, good behaviour involves not swearing at people unnecessarily, not punching people in the face. But good behaviour in schools should also mean promoting positive behaviours actually help them achieve success and flourish in the things they want to do in life. So, for example, great study habits. That's good behaviour. Yes. Uh, knowing how to conduct a debate. That's good behaviour. Uh, knowing how to speak confidently to an adult. That's good behaviour. And a lot of kids, particularly from better off backgrounds, um, get that kind of social capital at home. And surprise, surprise, it's a, it's a major part in why they succeed later in life. It's not just about grades, although grades are very important. But it's also about you know how you conduct yourself with with people, and 
that's what I would really love schools to see, to see that there is there's negative good behaviour and there's positive good behaviour. Negative good behaviour is teaching children to self-restrain so they don't hurt people and are rude to people and so on. And then there's positive good behaviour, which is teaching them habits of success, which is something which I think is also a responsibility. So that's that's what I think um, a new teacher should see as being their prime role with the class. And if you achieve that, if you embed those kind of structures and scaffolds into their lives, then the content is far more easily delivered and you can do far more exciting and interesting and, and more complex things with the class than you ever could before. It is literally a win-win for everybody in that situation. And when you talk about the kind of promoting positive behaviour, what, yeah. um, again, just on a, on a practical level, you've got, and you, you say like kind of well done for that possibly is, isn't enough. What what can an individual classroom teacher do there? What what would be a, an effective way of promoting positive behaviour that, that you've seen? Oh well, I mean, gosh, there's a million ways of doing it. I mean, for example, you could have a lesson on um, how to design your your, your study schedule yes. for, a, for a GCSE student. You know, you, you know, and that's promoting positive good behaviour because it, it it shows them a way of studying which is much better than just you know, sit down and look at your books for six hours. You know, the, you know, fun people have studied this. You know, there's a lot of research in cognitive psychology about interleaving, which is, you know, the, yes. the, which will be next year's brain gym, I'm sure. <laughs> but right now it's pretty hot, and rightly so. It's very interesting about the, the ways in which we retain information and way in which we um, can maximise our focus and we can maximise how learning is embedded. And one of the ways of doing it is through interleaving, so we can teach children about, you know, um, studying for a certain period of time and then taking a break and then coming back to after a certain period of time and so on. And these are ways in which we um, more efficiently embed um, and make automatic the kind of learning we're trying to get them to achieve. So that, that's one good example. But also, um, uh, you know, you get some schools like, gosh, King Solomon's Academy and so on, um, where they teach children how to have conversations. Yes. You know, I mean, that's a brilliant thing to do. I mean, I know it's, it's it sounds terribly prog. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd probably, probably be cast out of the trad club for that. <laughs> you know, but it's... But it's um, <laughs> now that I've revealed the existence of the trad club, <laughs> I'm now imagining a kind of a gentle, a gentle person's club in the middle of Mayfair, um, and you know I think these kind of things should be taught to children because once you teach children how to have good conversations, then the quality of conversation you have in the classroom, the quality of discussion you have, just rockets up. But as I said before, there are lots of children who think that, um, you know, ad hominems are a good form of argument, you know, or, 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 you know, or, 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 you know, saying things which are illogical or responding emotionally and so on. These are kind of things you can teach people not to do. Yes. So good examples as well. Okay, fantastic. Um, can, can I talk just a little bit about consistency? Because I think that this yes. is this is a main one. Now, I'm I'm currently reading the Michaela book, and I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. And I just reread in prep for this just a chapter on behaviour, and they make a big thing about kind of a no accept and uh, no um, exceptions culture, not quite zero tolerance, but but treating every every child the same and expecting the same high standards. Yeah. Is is consistency the the key to behaviour, or or are there occasions where you should treat some students differently to others? Let's be clear here. Consistency is one is absolutely one of the pillars of good behaviour management. Um, if you make it up as you go along, you end up being terribly unfair to children because children immediately start saying, "Well, why why is it that such and such was allowed to 
you know, swear at you, but I'm not allowed to swear at you, and, and so on. In order for you to form a culture, whether it's a classroom culture or a school culture, there needs to be shared values and beliefs, right? Um, it's why police officers don't just make it up as they go along. You know, it's why judges don't just make up as they go along. You know, they refer to stat- statute and they refer to law. And obviously they can interpret law, but there needs to be law. You know, and laws can be pretty flexible too, incidentally. You know, laws can be pretty nuanced and granular. So let's not pretend that having rules means that, you, that, you know, things, that, that the, your hands are tied. Um, you know, even the police and judges have got quite a large amount of leeway. And in a school, you can still have huge amounts of consistency and still also have interpretive powers to some extent. Um, you know, I don't want to mention Michaela too much because it, it gets a, it gets a, you know, it gets a bit of a slating at times. Yes. But even in Michaela, it's not truly no excuses. I mean, there are some, you know, admittedly, some very extreme circumstances in which children can be, you know, forgiven for, you know, any one of the million things you can do wrong at Michaela. Yes. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I'm very, very impressed with Michaela. It's got a lot of good things going for it. Um, so most schools that use the no zero Sorry, the, the no excuses of the zero tolerance policy. They don't actually mean zero tolerance, yes. so it's a bit misnomer, in my opinion. However, I do agree very much that, that exceptions must be exceptional. Yes. You know, so you can have exceptions to rules. And we've got exceptions to just about every single rule you can imagine. I mean, if you go back to uh, the, the deontological philosophers like Immanuel Kant and so on, they were really, really big on absolute rules. You know, they called it duties. You know, they believed in duties. And their duty was something you had to perform no matter what all the time. But you can even think of some exceptions to some duties. So, for example, you might have a duty never to kill, right? Because, you know, that sounds a pretty good duty to have. I mustn't kill people. But we can all think of circumstances, perhaps, sadly, in which maybe, you know, taking somebody's life might be necessary. So there are obviously some exceptions to that. Um, but exceptions must be exceptional. Yes. You, you can't have a rule in society which says um, you know, it's okay to murder as long as you're doing it for a good reason. You know, you couldn't have a society on that basis. In the same way, in, 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 a, in, in a classroom, you can't have a rule which says you can work as much as you like. You know, the, the rule has to be everyone works as hard as they bloody well can. Yes. Unless there's some real extenuating circumstance. You know, it could be a broken arm or, or, or whatever, you know, or maybe they don't understand the work, so they're given something uh, perhaps a bit more supportive and nurturing. And so whatever, you know, exceptions are exceptional. And can, I, I think- can I just ask on that one, Tom? Because obviously it's the thing that kids, they're very perceptive, they, they pick up on the slightest hint of, of inconsistency. Yeah. What's your advice there where if there are, if you know of exceptional circumstances with a particular child and for whatever reason they've done something that's broken your rule and you, you've decided, because it's an exception, not to treat them in the exact same way as you would do another child who broke that rule in that yeah. way. And then the other kids are picking up on it. How? What are you saying to the rest of the class there how are you justifying it when they're shouting at you sir you wouldn't have done that if i'd have done this and, and so yeah, on yeah, and yeah. so forth well well so what do you do with a class when um they're howling that you're unfair because you've made an exception for a child well for a start you could still apply the consequence codes to that child i mean 15 kids might come to you and say oh they haven't done their homework now you so that's you setting 15 detentions and then you've set the detention and then one child comes up to you in detention and says, I couldn't do my homework because, um, you know, my parents split up last night or something like that. Now, you would have to have a heart of stone to say, you know, tough. 
Uh, and personally, I would say, right, okay, I understand that's terrible. And, you know, you might even have some kind of restorative chat with them or whatever. Um, I would still ask them to try and do the homework for me next time and make an extension. And the class would probably get wind a little bit about what was going on there. If you made, if you were really blunt and, and, and kind of stupid about it, you just said, right, that's fine, you can go home right now. Then the class might not understand why it happened and so on. But I actually find the classes can be fairly flexible when they know there's a good reason. So, for example, you know, I once taught a class where one of the children had Tourette's. Now, the child swore at me a lot, but the class didn't say, why is he allowed to swear? They got it. They understood. As long as they understand that exceptions are exceptional and that they didn't have the same right to do so because they didn't have Tourette's. So, you know, so there are ways of getting around. I mean, children are reasonably fluid um, with these kind of things and a reasonable understanding as long as they understand that there is an exceptional reason to it. If you if they think you're just making up as you go along, then they will rightly consider you to be unfair because you will be. Got it. Fantastic. Can I ask you the last two questions, Tom? That's um, the way. Is that okay? Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm interested about this. The um, You talked about consistency for bad behaviour. I think often when I watch lessons or even when I give lessons, there's a cons- inconsistency when it comes to giving out praise or praising positive behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if you've got a particularly naughty kid in the class and he happens to do something good like put his hand up, which won't be exceptional, I, I tend to really focus on that. You know, well well done Tom or whoever for putting your hand up, that's absolutely fantastic. But I'd never do that for, for Katie who always puts her hand up. Is that is that form of inconsistency as dangerous as being inconsistency with, with poor behaviour? You're absolutely right to say that many teachers focus more on bad behaviour than good behaviour. Um, you can still be consistent in that approach, uh, but apply it in a more subtle way. Let me give an example. There may be a kid in your class who has really, really struggled with their behaviour. Uh, even getting them facing the right way has been yes. achieved for you, right? So, they, so one day they put their hand up to ask a question for the first time instead of shouting it, and you say, well done, Craig. Sorry. Well done, Craig. <laughs> You put your hand up. I really appreciated that, right? And you make it simple. You make it sincere. You make it proportionate. You don't gush. You don't. You don't patronise them. You just say, "I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. That was really polite." What's your question, right? If you did that for a kid who does it automatically, if you said to them, "Oh, well done, Tandy," for um, sorry, I've just been watching Westworld. Well done, Tandy, um, for putting your hand up. Then Tandy would look at you like you were an idiot. And also she wouldn't appreciate it and she'd feel patronised. But you can still show appreciation for Tandy for something which she does respect as a reward, which is perhaps the quality of her answer or the complexity of her answer. Or you could mention something she wrote in a book the past week. Or you could say to the class, class, can you listen to this because this is a really good answer. Right? That's what you do. You you then, you kind of, so you're still being consistent with the children. You're still using praise to reinforce the kind of behaviours and social norms that you want to see. But you're not always doing it for exactly the same things. And why would you? Because people are, of course, different. So you're right. We absolutely do need to focus much more on praise, praise, praise. But it needs to be needs to be proportionate and needs to be sincere. You know, the only the only judge that anyone cares about in the X Factor is Simon Cowell. Or at least to, and that used to be because his, his praise was very faint. He's, he's a bit more gushing these days. Yes. But it used to be in the old days he was Mr. Nasty. And if he said that was good, it meant you were brilliant. And that's all that anybody cared about. It's better better to be more of the Simon Cowell than it is to be the David Wallums or whatever. You know, nobody cares what he says. Yeah. Um, he's a gushing goof. <laughs> but God. Cowell used to be kind of the, the, the man to get praise from. That's the kind of teacher, I think, which gets results. And, and like I say, you can use praise liberally throughout your lesson by praising things which are meaningful to the child. 
God. And also by praising things which are things you want to see other children doing. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And you're doing that as a way of not having to criticize people. So if you're trying to get the class to be quiet, one of the most powerful ways you can do it is by saying, well done, Jemima. Jemima's doing what she should be doing. She's listening very carefully. Well done, Ruth. Well done, Joanna. Well done, John. You know, and that kind of praise is very, very powerful because you're creating a social norm for everyone else to attach themselves to. Well, we've, we've talked here about kind of getting behaviour expectations right from, from the start and so on. But what, what, what about for the teacher who's listening to this, thinking to themselves, right, that's brilliant, but I've, I've already lost me year nines, I've already lost me year tens, the, the behaviour's a little bit out of control, they've lost respect for me and so on. How, how can teachers get classes back on board midway through a year? The good news is, is that every teacher can reboot their classroom. Um, and it's pretty much a mind game to some extent because many teachers will defeat themselves by thinking, I can't do this. My class don't respect me. I've lost them. Yes. If you think, if you think like that, you have lost them. Here's the, that's the weird thing. It's almost like you can have a trick. But if you think to yourself, I can get them back, then you usually can. What you do is you walk in the next day and I mean the next lesson and you, You've got to be mentally prepared for it. And you start the lesson off by saying, right, guys, we're going to talk about behavior just now. We're going to talk about the expectations I have of you and what you can expect from me. I'm going to talk about how things haven't been going as well as they could be and why that's causing a problem for your learning. So let me just reiterate my expectations with you and what will happen if we don't meet these expectations. But also what will happen when we do meet these expectations, as I know you all will eventually. You know, you, you, you sell it, you sell it, you sell it. And then you just work that line and you stick to your line. Because the problem that most teachers have isn't laying down rules. The problem most teachers have, although sometimes they don't, which is part of the problem, but the problem most teachers have is maintaining those rules yes. and maintaining those boundaries and making sure that um, they follow up. Because that's when it gets difficult. That's when it gets tiring. That's when it requires character. That's when it requires school support. That's where things start to fall down. So the structures themselves are reasonably straightforward. But the execution of those structures are the things that take real guts. Got it. And and just on a similar line there, uh, Tom, I know often we get supply teachers listening to this or teachers on a temporary contract and so on who perhaps don't have that long-term investment that they know that, that they're not going to be there in a month's time yeah. or even in a, a day's time. Is there any kind of short, sharp, practical things that they can do to, to try and instill this kind of culture and these routines in, in such a short period of time, if that makes sense? There are, there are, there are, although it's got to be acknowledged, it is a hundred times harder Definitely. for these people. And I, and I salute supply teachers and people in that situation and cover teachers and cover supervisors. They do a job which is ten times harder than most classroom teachers because, as you say, they don't have that opportunity to build that relationship and to build those cultural and social norms. Um, what a good supply teacher should do, and I've seen some brilliant supply teachers. Is first of all, oh, <laughs> I mean, I'll be talking to the converted here, but you know, here's here's my top tips on how to teach a granny to suck eggs. <laughs> Always have a lesson up your sleeve. Yes. Always have uh, ten lessons up your sleeve, um, which are age appropriate, because you might be walking to a school where sadly the cover set is not particularly appropriate or yes. even particularly useful, and that's that, that's that, that's stage one. You know, if you if you get a bad cover lesson to deliver the kids look at it and go well this is valueless and you're already starting five steps behind yes next thing to do is um most supply teachers tend to work with the same schools over and over again so get to know the people who are on the behavior hierarchy get to know some names get to know some um get to know some people who can assist you um so that you can refer to these people make sure you know what the school rules are make sure you know what the school policy is on behavior 
Make sure you know someone at the end of the day that you can give names to and, and, and ask for some kind of follow-up. And then next time you're in the school, ask if the follow-up happened. Sometimes you've got to manage upwards a little bit. But also make sure that when you um, are doing your supply lesson with... Um, with uh, Sorry, big important. I lost my thread there. If you just edit this a little bit. Sure. For a second. Um, I say to new teachers of any class, make sure you set out your behavior stall um, as soon as you can. You can also do the same even when you've only gotten for one lesson. You know, you can spend the first five minutes of your lesson saying, here's what I need from you guys. Here's what's good. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the work I'm going to hand out. Um, here's the basic conduct I expect from you. I've got a class register. I've got your names here, you know, and, and I need to make sure that we're going to work to this. And I hope we have a great lesson, you know. So you've got to, you've got to compress all of the behavior rules that most teachers do, but you've got to sell it in five minutes. It's a much harder sell. But that, but you know, but there aren't really shortcuts. There's no trick to it. It's just, it's just hard work all the way through. Yeah, but perfect. And I guess it's a similar thing if teachers have cover lessons in French. If I, I as a maths teacher, go into a year ten lesson and it's French or history or whatever, straight away you, you're onto a loser if the cover works crap. I mean that that's that's your first issue. So I think you're draw right. your hand. Draw your hand was my favourite art cover. <laughs> that's draw not bad. Hand. I like that. Me? <laughs> Write a poem about write a poem about Jesus. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's the work, and the kids know that's they rubbish. Do they do know. Yeah, you're right, and I think that's that's great advice. That Tom, just having a lesson up your sleeve, even if you even if you're on a French cover or a history cover or whatever, whether it's a bit of maths or some, something like that. I think that's that's great advice. But it is hard, isn't it? Because you you get the classic thing from kids: uh, Miss lets us talk, Miss lets us do this, Miss lets us do that, and it's yeah. it's difficult, right? To to in that short period of time get the behavior you want because of course you mentioned at the start of this that when you're setting out your rules at the start of the year and kids are going to test it and kids are going to take the time to to, to kind of find the boundaries and you're going to be a little more tolerant of of rule breaking in those first couple of weeks whilst kids are getting used to it but of course you just don't have that luxury in that single lesson and it's 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 difficult isn't it i usually find when i do um cover lessons that if there's a child who's really pushing the boundaries, then, I mean, what, what I'd recommend for any classroom teacher is to, if you've really tried with them, they're making it impossible to run your classroom, have them removed. You know, have them parked next door, something like that. And the class will see really, really quickly, oh, they, you know, they mean business to some extent. That they won't just let anything happen. So, you know, you can set down your your, your, your boundaries to some extent. And they will not be necessarily as effective as a long-term relationship, but it's better than doing nothing. And also, you got to treat the lesson like it's a real lesson. Yes. I see a lot of supply teachers, and I include in, and I include in school class teachers as well. Yes. As I don't expect you to behave. I don't expect you to care about this lesson. I do. Yes. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing a geography cover or a maths cover, you know, I will do my damn just to read the the the, 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 the lesson as, as much as I possibly can and think, right, how can how can I teach this? Yes. Tom, just to end this conversation about behaviour, I just wondered if I could just chuck a couple of kind of behaviour cliches at you and you tell me whether there's there's any truth in them, if, if oh, that's, all, yeah, if that's okay. all right. So first one that I, I heard a lot is the classic, don't smile until Christmas. Um, is there um, any, any truth in that? Uh, literally, no, not true. Um, metaphorically, there's some truth to it in the sense of if you are too nice to them, if you present very fuzzy soft boundaries to the children uh, because you want them to like you uh, then it's very hard to get that back whereas if you start off with them reasonably rigid and reasonably inflexible and you know to some extent um, not necessarily a tough guy but certainly someone who 
who appears to know what they want and won't bend on it very much. That's a far better way to present yourself. You can smile as much as you like, <laughs> as long as what you do is 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 uh, is pretty strict. Got it. You, and you can do it with a smile. I mean, Richard III, I can smile and murder while I smile. And you know, you <laughs> you know, I mean, I set the tensions and 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 I'm and, and I'm polite about it. You know, I tell kids off and I'm polite about it. I treat them with dignity. I don't I don't try to humiliate them. But you know, it's. And I try to be nice to them, but at the same time, being nice doesn't mean just giving them anything that they want. It's sometimes being nice means giving them what they need. Got it. Fantastic. Now, now this next one's an interesting one because two, two, two very different people have mentioned this on this podcast. The first was Dylan William, and the second was an NQT who's just literally just completed a first year of teaching. And they both said that they found it very effective to um, get to know a lot about the students outside of lessons. Now... Is that something that's important? And is there a danger that, that that kind of goes to one of your rules, that you need to be their teacher and not their friend? Um, it dep- well, as, as with most uh, answers, I will hedge my bets. To some extent. <laughs> sure. <laughs> of course it depends. There are some things which are important to know about some pupils. For example, it's important to know about um, you know, a child's special educational needs. It's important to know if there are special circumstances in the family background. There is, it's important to know if a child is gifted in some way. It's, it's important to know all this, these kind of things, which are normally communicated by good school data, although you know some, sometimes not if the schools aren't very much on top of it. How these, about how about interest, Tom? Like this child's good at football. This child does this. Just so you've got something else to engage with them. That's a, that's a useful thing to be able to use as part of your conversational repertoire. And um, particularly when you're trying to reach out to that one individual pupil. Yes. However, any mention of football in a class may switch five kids on, but yes. may switch five kids off. So you really have to make sure that when you're talking to the whole class, you talk in a certain way. A conversation with that pupil who loves football, that's great. That's that's a really nice bridge. And they say we, with any conversation, it's nice to find common interest because when you find common interest, you often find a, a common cultural language. Uh, and, and, and common cues, which you can then use to translate what you want into into the language they understand. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bust a gut finding out what their hobbies were, right? Unless it came up naturally. And if you've got a class for any length of time, you'll tend to have conversations with children eventually. It's something you should do. Um, we ask them how they are and how their weekends were and so on. When you've got a minute or two free. You know, after the lesson, having they're packing up and so on. And these are really good circumstances to find out a little bit more about your pupils because they want to see you um, as, as someone that they can have a relationship with. The relationship still needs to be reasonably formal. Yes. But you, you can still be friendly without being their friend. Got it. Fantastic. And the, the last one I hear a lot is is get parents involved as soon as possible. Um, is that something that's effective communicating with parents on a regular yeah. basis, both oh. about both about positive and negative behaviour? Absolutely, absolutely. I often say to teachers that um, if you've got the time, if you've got the time, yes. <laughs> that, that if is working hard there. Um, if you've got the time, try and call home before you need to. Ah, okay. you know, build, build, build up a positive emotional bank account with these people and make sure that they see you as being somebody who's there to look out for their child educationally, but also socially, and that you're there for them. So that when you do have to call home, the conversation is much more supportive than it is punitive. Yes. A lot of parents sorry, a lot of teachers sadly make the mistake of calling home and treating the parents as though they're the ones that did something wrong. Yes. Whereas parents should be seen as part of the solution. Most parents, the vast majority of parents in my experience, and I've worked in some tough schools, the vast majority of parents want the best for their children. What they don't want to be told is is that their children are scum. What they don't want to be told is that they are bad parents. 
what they want to be told is your child's gone off the rails a wee bit or your child's done something a bit naughty or a bit wrong today. I need your help to get them back on track because I know they can do well. Got it. If you say if you say that or words to that effect to just about any parent in the world, just about any parent will be happy with that. And they'll say, Right, what can we do? Got it. And I think you're right. And I think obviously there's there's You know, what can we do to help? Or what no, you're right, Tom. And I think there's, just like with students, there's exceptions to that. But as a general principle, that is going to work for the vast majority oh, you know, of parents. But, right. but, but the thing is, though, one of the things I found about giving advice when it comes to education is that, I mean, Dylan William, who you just mentioned there, put it beautifully. He said, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, what I just told you about calling parents is, is, I think, massively valuable advice for the vast majority of children and parents. There are some parents who will um, break the kid's job when they get home. If they get a phone call. Do you know the phrase, uh, hard cases makes bad law? No, I've never heard that one, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's just the old idea that... Um, I don't know if you're being sarcastic or not. No, I'm not. Genuinely not. I don't promise. <laughs> right. um, yeah, you teach maths, don't you? Um, <laughs> sorry. We'll cut that yeah. bit out, I'll say that much. <laughs> sorry, if I, I express that in binary, would that be... No. Um, <laughs> It's, it's the idea that um, there are always exceptional circumstances, but when you're creating a rule for the majority of people, you have to create it to suit the majority of people. Yes. Then you work out the exceptions as you go along. So, for example, you know, there's a rule that you don't murder. Having said that, you know, sometimes we ask soldiers to do so. Sometimes the police have to defend them. Whatever, you know, self-defense and so on. Um, but in general, there's a principle you mustn't murder, right? You mustn't steal and so on. Yes. And, and the same in a classroom. The advice you should call parents is pretty good. It's 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 a best fit, and when it comes to behaviour advice in particular, it's all about best fits. If you um, if you were to raise a gun in a crowded theatre and fire it into the air, most people would run away. You know that's a pretty good psychological bet. Yeah. However, one percent of one percent of people might rush towards you and try and disarm you. One percent of one percent might think it was funny. You know there are always exceptions. There yes. are always extreme cases. Um, but you can't design rules to fit those people. What you do is you create safety valves to accommodate those people. Got it. I like that. That's that's fantastic. Well, uh, Tom, we've come to the part, point of the show now where I hand over to you um, for your big three. So that's now, the most exciting part of the show. <laughs> it, it is. So I'm going to shut up, and if you could just t- talk listeners through if there are any three websites, blog posts, books, whatever you want, and I'll provide links to these in the show notes. Um, my big three. Well, um. I'm going to do two was it two kisses and a wish. <laughs> nice. Um, the, the 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 first the first um the first way, uh, link I'm going to suggest is something I wrote. I know that's terrible, isn't it? Um, but it's free, which makes it even better. It's a PDF which I wrote for the uh, Education Development Trust last year, and it's about becoming a research lead and how a teacher can meaningfully become the person who engages with the research and then brings it into the school. Uh, and if you just type, if you just Google um, Tom Bennett Research Lead Education Development Trust, it'll take you straight straight to that PDF. Um, and it's really, really short, and there's some lovely pictures, and it's you know it's 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 kind of useful. I hope, and I hope people would find that kind of useful. And the second thing I would recommend is the Science of Learning by the Deans for Impact. Deans for Impact are an American organisation, and they've created again another short, free to download PDF, which. Um, just summarises some of the basic lessons and techniques that um, can actually help teachers in the classroom based on research and based on things like cognitive psychology and how children learn and how they focus and how they retain information. It's so, so short and it's so, so useful and I wish every teacher had to read it. 
Uh, the third thing I'm going to recommend, and this is super cheeky, this is um, this is researched my researched website, researched.org.uk, and on that, teachers can find um, teachers and academics and educators can find uh, news of forthcoming conferences that where we get people together to talk about how we can become more research engaged in the profession, but also how we can improve research and make sure that we bust as many myths as possible. There's also loads of resources on that website. Um, lots of uh, PDFs, lots of links, and lots of um, filmed sessions from research ed conferences where people can actually hear um, some really, really great speakers talking about how research has made a meaningful impact on their own education. So those are the three resources I would I would recommend. There are dozens more, particularly some books, but, I, but I'm going to plump for them. That's fantastic. Can I, I just ask you quickly on that one, Tom? Research ed, what, what's been, is there anything that spri- um, kind of springs to mind as a particularly surprising piece of research that you've either read or listened through, through your work with, with research ed? Anything that's made you think, flipping heck, that is actually quite quite shocking, that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. In fact, I was looking at your questions this morning about that. I was thinking really carefully about that because you, you asked two questions there. You said, What's the most uh, the best bit of research, and what's the most surprising yes. bit of research? So I'm going to try and answer both those questions. Okay, fantastic. Um, fantastic. I'm going to be a bit cheeky here. I, I think the the, the 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 best piece of research is more just the general field of cognitive psychology, and I could do no better. And sorry, this is a cheeky fourth big. <laughs> I could um, I could, I could uh, do no better than to direct any educator towards Daniel Willingham. The the uh, professor from the University of Virginia in America, he wrote a brilliant book called Why Don't uh, Students Like School? And it's basically an introduction to cognitive psychology for teachers. And it's so, so readable. Um, and so I would say that that's the, that's the best research available to teachers. And he summarized it beautifully because, of course, many teachers don't have a lot of time to read. Yes. A great research. Obviously, there's workload for you one more time. Uh, and the most surprising about research is also one of the best bits of research I've read. So, you know, I'm being doubly cheeky here. It's called Project Follow Through. I don't know if you've have you heard of this. No, I haven't at all. And that's not me being it, sarcastic either. I, I definitely it, haven't. Project. Well, listen. Here's the thing. The reason why it's surprising is because it's the largest and most expensive experimental project in education ever funded, Flip. ever conducted. And almost no teacher has heard of it. That's no. why it's surprising. It's, it started, I think, in 1968 and it ran through well, kind of until 1977. But in actual fact, there was still funding going for it until 1995. So you're talking about, you know, almost 30 years worth of, worth of uh, research and data. And it was basically, uh, it, it kind of predated the EEF in terms of, you know, enormous randomized controlled trials. And they wanted to try and find out what were the best ways. Margin was that the most effective form of teaching was direct instruction was when the teacher is basically the source of information, communicates that information to the children clearly, um, asks them to practice using that information, and then checks the learning of that information. I mean, I've, I've super summarised it in a, in, a, in a far too reductive way, but it's the classic kind of traditional model of how you would teach a class. They found that that was far, far more effective for uh, for retention and for, uh, and for you know retainment of information and all kinds of things. So... Um, Sorry, retainment isn't even a word. <laughs> Please cut that out. So basically, they found that direct instruction was, was by far the the, 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 the most uh, useful way of teaching children. And it was decried and derided by a lot of people who prefer things like project-based learning and collaborative learning and so on. And for many kind of ideological reasons, it kind of dropped out of favour. But it's all there and all the data is there to look at. And that's why it's so surprising is that most teachers haven't even heard of this and it's not being taught very well. That's fantastic. That's that's something I would like to bring back to life a lot. 
So there you have it. There was my interview with Tom Bennett. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got a lot out of it. I know I certainly did. As I said at the start of the podcast, we were besieged by numerous flipping annoying technical difficulties throughout the interview. Um, And it interrupted the flow a little bit at at numerous times, but I really hope it didn't diminish your listening experience too much. And once again, just a massive thank you to Tom for for his patience and, and not hanging up on me and just continuing like the professional and the very nice man that he is. So cheers for that, Tom. Um, In terms of a takeaway this episode, I guess the only thing I really can talk about is is behaviour. And when I was doing my preparation for the interview and doing all my reading, um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on on my approach and my experience with behaviour management. Now I'm in my, oh God, it's it's either my 11th or 12th year as a teacher. That's that's rather worrying, seeing as I'm a math teacher and I don't quite have the grasp on numbers that I should have. I'm pretty sure it's my 12th year as a teacher. And it's also my second school. I've been in uh, my first first school for six years and uh, it's my sixth year in in this current school um, that I'm in now. And when I first started being a teacher um, as an NQT, I was one of those who just wanted and in fact needed to be liked, liked by everybody, whether it was teachers or students, um, well-behaved kids, poorly behaved kids, whatever. I needed to be liked by everybody. And that's just a character flaw that I had back then. And I'd love to say I've grown out of it now I'm in my mid 30s, but I haven't in the slightest. And that's difficult and dangerous for a, for a teacher, right? Because you can't be liked by everybody or certainly you can't be liked uh, in the way that I was trying to be. And that that was kind of like not wanting to shout at kids, not wanting to discipline kids because I knew that would make them turn against me. And when I heard tales of, of kids coming in saying, oh, such a person's put me in detention for this, but I hate him, blah, 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 blah. It made me immediately think, right, I, I'm going to get in the good books by not doing that and so on. And of course it doesn't work because whilst they may like you in the short term they they don't respect you uh, the kids and it's about earning their respect and I think as Tom mentioned when people say to teachers oh you've got to earn the kids respect unless they follow that up with practical things it's absolute waste of time and I think certainly my first school I, I earned the respect from the kids just by consistency but more than that just by showing them that I cared showing them that I prepared lessons well showing them that I'd done the work, showing them that I'm going to put time into the preparation, that I'm passionate about my subject. And also, I think rewarding positive behavior was a good one and showing the students that didn't want to engage what they were missing out on, if that makes sense. So not being patronizing in my praise for the kids who were doing well and doing what I wanted to, but just showing them that if they were willing to engage with me, I was going to put so much effort and so much energy in. And that certainly worked for me that over the kind of first six years or so of of my teaching career. (laughs) And then I moved schools. And if you haven't listened to the interview I had with, uh, that I did with Mel from Just Maths, and there's a bit in that where we talk about moving schools. And it's one of those unspoken things in teaching. Moving schools is a flipping nightmare. And I wasn't I wasn't prepared for it because once you've been in a school for a certain amount of time, you get a certain status and the kids know you. And even if you've never taught certain students, you've probably taught their brothers or the sisters or the friends or so on. And, and that really, really helps. But I went into a new school thinking I'd kind of cracked this teaching game. It was easy. And honestly, that first term, I did not know what had hit me. I was in tears most nights. Um, I was wanting to quit the school, um, quit teaching full stop. I did not know what was going on. And it was the behavior because I couldn't control the kids. And looking back, all right, they were certainly more challenging kids than I experienced in my previous school. 
but not to the extent that it was affecting me or that I'd lost control. It was because I couldn't establish the routines or probably more, more precisely, I hadn't had the time to establish the routines and I hadn't thought about how I was going to go about re-establishing myself in a new environment. I just, because I'd never done it before, I'd never moved school, I just thought I can waltz in and everything would just be the same. And and looking back, that was, that was the mistake I made and I had to build it up again. And once again, at the start, I probably fell back into that trap of wanting to be liked and so on. But relatively quickly, I went for that same technique again, trying to just show the kids how much I cared. And for me, that that's what's kind of worked. I'm, I'm not, it may surprise you this, you may be, those of you who haven't met me, you, you may think, God, he's, he's probably some kind of rock hard uh, gangster type teacher. You can probably tell that from, from my, my voice, but I'm not actually. <laughs> and I don't have that fear factor. Um, the kids aren't scared of me or anything like that that I know that a, a lot of teachers have. I guess I just, yeah, kind of have my kind of passion and, and interest in, in mathematics. And, and that's kind of what's worked for me. And I guess what I'm trying to say in this rambling way is doing this interview and reflecting on behavior is, has made me think it's it's about finding out what works for you with the kids. And, and for me, as I say, it was, it, was, it was that passion and showing the kids that I cared that doesn't win over all the kids straight away, but it wins enough over. And for me, there's kind of a critical mass or or a tipping point, if you will, within a lesson that, all right, if half the kids aren't listening to you and messing around, that's going to be tricky. But as soon as you get over half or as soon as you get 20 out of 30 and you can focus your attention on them and the other kids realize that they're missing out on the learning, that they're missing out on, on what you're giving the other kids. As I say, for, for me, that worked. But Look, there's enough in this podcast and there's enough out there, certainly in the links that Tom's Tom's given there and, and in the numerous books that are out there that hopefully you can find your way of, of, of finding that behavior strategy that works. And can I also make a little plea and that's, that if you've got other teachers in your department, and I'm not just talking about kind of NQTs or student teachers or teachers in the first couple of years, but any teacher out there, um, if you get a sense that they're struggling with behavior, just kind of have a little word to them because honestly, it, it's the most demoralizing thing when, when, when you're struggling as a teacher. It's a lonely, lonely job when, when you, you can't control a class and so on. And just kind of offer them a bit of help or advice or support or something like that. It could just make the world a difference. Anyway, <laughs> enough preaching for me. Time to hand back to, to Tom for a podcast puzzle. Now, this has been an unusual podcast in the fact that it's not been about mathematics at all. So it will seem a shame to chuck a maths problem at you here. And Tom has certainly not disappointed because he has got, I'm going to be honest with you, we're going deep with this one. So get ready for this, certainly the deepest um, podcast puzzle that we've ever had on the show. So without further ado, back to Mr. Tom Bennett. This is the exciting part of the, of, of the podcast where I'm asked to, to contribute a puzzle. Now, there are all kinds of puzzles which, which one could look at in terms of mathematical puzzles and so on. And obviously, that's, that's way out of my field. Um, I teach philosophy and philosophy is my degree. So well, it would be kind of, I guess, easy for me to, to chip in a, kind of like a philosophical paradox of some kind. But actual fact, I teach religion. And um, I'm not a religious person myself. Um, I'm agnostic, although I do appreciate and respect the value of religion in many ways. I think I think it's a fascinating subject. I mean, I've always been fascinated by religion, and increasingly so as I've taught it now for over ten years. 
And one of the things I, I found absolutely uh, fascinating was in um, was in the Zen Buddhism. There's um, there's such a there's such a thing as a koan, and it's kind of philosophical riddle in, in Zen Buddhism. And here's the interesting thing: they're not meant to be solved; they're meant to make you think. And there's a really classic example, which probably many people have heard of, which is what is the sound of one hand clapping? Yeah. Now, the minute you start to think about it, you go, well, that's impossible. But the very fact that the question says, what is the sound of one hand clapping, makes you start to kind of struggle with this notion of one hand clapping. It's a bit like saying, what does a square circle look like? You know, I used used to try and get my philosophy students to try and visualize that um, as, as an act of paradox. And... You know, for a second they think they've got it, and then they realise that what they're just thinking about is a circle with pointy bits. So, the, so the Zen koan, "What is the sound of one hand clapping?" I love it because it's unanswerable. But just thinking about it makes you fall into that that understanding of what it means to grasp a paradox. And it's not so much the answer you come up with that matters; it's the process of grappling with an impossibly hard question, which I think is 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 in some way quite edifying um i think that we often look for pat simple answers for everything and wrestling with a cone is a really really useful i think really useful mental exercise for kind of toughening up your knuckles by punching them against something which can't be broken um i can explain it no better than that but then i get i think i guess that's the point of the zen cone so there i leave with you a zen cone as my puzzle So, what do you reckon to that then? I'm saying by far the deepest puzzle we've ever had on the Mist of Art and Maths podcast. I love it. And that just about brings us to the end of yet another episode of the podcast. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. As I say, like I, I love doing these interviews and thanks so much for listening. Um, if you do get a chance, if you've got a spare minute, I know everybody's dead busy, but if, if you do have a spare minute just to leave a very quick review on iTunes, I'd be eternally grateful. Um, if you're going to leave a bad one though, don't bother, I'll be honest with you. Um, and all that's left for me to do is to once again thank my very special guest, Mr. Tom Bennett, for giving up his time and sharing his wisdom. As I say, I found it absolutely fascinating and I enjoyed every second of the interview. And also, huge thanks to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. I'll return in the near future with another fascinating guest from the world of education, but you take care of yourselves, and bye for now. Bye.